Good morning. I had a lovely opportunity to greet some of you as you came in on this cold and slightly drizzly morning, so I am glad you chose to wake up and be here today. But I have to warn you, uh, I really struggled in preparing for today. When you write sermons week after week, how do you kick off a new year? Where do you begin? What do you start and say, this is what we should all be discussing and thinking about and learning? And as I struggled through where do we begin, I landed on, well, let's go back to continuing something we started previously and never finished. For those of you who are here earlier in 2023, we started walking through the book of Romans. Just looking at it verse by verse, what does this mean and why does it matter? And if you were not here and are unfamiliar with the book of Romans, you may know that Romans begins in a pretty rough place. See, the book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul, probably from the city of Corinth in about 55 AD, and he was writing to the church in Rome. And the church in Rome was divided and torn apart. Because about six or seven years prior, all the Jewish people had been kicked out of Rome, especially the Jewish Christians. And during those six or seven years, non-Jewish Christians began to move in and grow in number. And as the Jewish people began to come back, there was this tension between the Jewish Christian faith and the Gentile Christian faith, the faith of those who were not always a part of the community. And so Paul, in writing, writes to the people in Romans to try to encourage them, to try to remind them of the very thing that we hold dear, the gospel that we believe in, and to try to challenge them as a church to be unified in all things. But in order to do so, Paul begins his letter to the Romans with some pretty harsh words. And that's where we're going to start today. Like, well, that's a terrible way to start the new year. Hang with me, because I think in the midst of these harsh words, we also see a lot of really good encouragement for you and me for the start of this year. Romans chapter 1, this is where we're going to begin, just a little recap. If you're following along, this is on page, uh, I think I had it for the next section, but what page is it for the Blue Bibles? If you'll just jump ahead to chapter 2, 1173. All right, now you can go back. Sorry about that. That was, that was my doing. So if you would like to use those blue Bibles and follow along, page 1173, we'll start in chapter 1 and kind of work our way up to where we want to begin. In chapter 1, as he gives his greeting, Paul, he concludes his greeting with kind of the central statement, the thing this whole book is about. In verse 16, he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He goes on in verse 17 and says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Paul has this mission in his writing to the church. I am not ashamed of the gospel. This good news, this message to be proclaimed that is of salvation for all people. I'm not ashamed of this. He doesn't feel the need to shrink away from it when it is challenging. He doesn't feel the need to hide from it when it actually becomes the center of conflict. But Paul sees this power of the gospel for 
every one of us. So this is kind of his key theme, and where he begins then is he starts in chapter 1 by spelling out this reality. This reality that God in his creation made himself known. That every one of us, just by looking at the world around us, should be able to discover who he is. But because of our own sinfulness and our own selfishness, we take what He has created as good and turn it around not to worship Him, but instead to worship a God made in our image. And Paul describes that because of this, God has given us over to all sorts of evil, all kinds of pain and suffering and sorrow. See, in order to understand what Paul is saying, we have to begin with the reality that everything we experience that is painful and filled with evil is not because we have an evil God, but because we all, every one of us, are broken. The very world in which we live in is not yet as it should be, and this very world that should be proclaiming God's goodness instead reveals to us sorrow and sickness and pain and hurt. And so from here, we get into chapter 2. Beginning in verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. You see, Paul keeps mentioning the Jew and the Greek first because there's something in our culture that we don't have that they had. In the Jewish culture, they perceived, based on the promises of the Old Testament, the Jewish people to be the only people of God. And as a result, they believed that everybody to become a part of the people of God would have to become Jewish. I don't know if you know this, Jesus was a Jewish man who was Jewish all the way up until his death. He never stopped being Jewish. And yet, Jesus never told people, begin to become a Jew. Don't do, he never told them, go and do all the things of the Old Testament and the law and fulfill it perfectly and keep the commandments. Instead, he invited them, come and follow me. Come and find in me the life that is abundant. Come and receive from me everything you've been looking for. And so what happened in the church as it began to grow was you began to find people who were pagan, mostly, who were non-Jewish and also non-Christian, who began to look at Jesus and his followers and say, we believe what they have to offer is true and is good and is lovely. And began to give themselves wholly. They say, we want to follow this. And as a result, division began to grow. Because as they were following God through Jesus, they weren't always following the Jewish custom. So when Paul frequently mentions first to the Jew and then to the Greek, he's speaking to them, look, for those of you who came from this rich tradition, this is for you. But also for those of you who did not, the things that I'm saying are for you as well. And I'm going to come back to that here in a little bit because I think that is essential for understanding where he's going in Romans. But I love this verse. For God shows no partiality. 
We have an impartial God. He does not show favoritism to one or the other. He does not love one person more than another. He does not treat one better and the other worse. God is impartial and gives freely to all. He continues, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now again, to understand the Jewish culture a little bit, the law of God, often called the Torah, is the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible for the Jewish people. And this law of God is how we are to live. And part of what made the Jewish culture and community at the time believe that they were better than everyone else and more deserving of God's favor was because they had His commandments. They knew what was right and what was wrong. They knew His words and how to keep them and honor them. But Paul, in describing that God has no partiality, he says, look, everybody who sins even without the law will equally perish. Ignorance of the law does not make you innocent of the law. I've discovered this several times when I did not know how fast I should be driving and it was faster than the police officer wanted me to be driving. Ignorance is not an excuse to get away with doing the wrong thing. But he says in the same way, if you know what is right and you do what is wrong anyway, you're judged accordingly too. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. If I get pulled over for speeding and the officer asks me, sir, do you know why I pulled you over? And I say, actually, yes, I do. I was speeding. And he asked me, well, do you know what the speed limit was? Yes, I do. It was 65. Do you know how fast you're going? Absolutely. 85, because that's what everybody does. That's not going to get me out of the ticket, probably. In fact, he may look at my confidence in knowing what is right and intentionally doing what is wrong as a reason all the more to give me the ticket. He says, look, hearing the law and knowing what is good does not make you righteous. And righteous is a big word we don't normally use in our culture, culture today. So really simply, what does righteous mean? It means in right standing. Knowing what is right, but doing what is wrong does not make you in right standing. Now you and I would say, well, that sounds obvious, right? Maybe not. He continues, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. He says, look, if somebody doesn't know what is right, and they accidentally do the right thing, that's still a really good thing. We all know this to be true. If somebody's not knowing what is right or wrong and they do the right thing, we celebrate that the right thing happened. But even if they don't know that they're doing the wrong thing, we still say, hey, this wasn't good or right or okay. It's very natural in our world that even if somebody doesn't know what they should do, if they stumble their way into the right thing, we praise them. I mean, look at college football. This happens all the time. Teams luck out and somehow find themselves winning when they shouldn't be. We're like, wow, good for them. 
It happens in our daily lives everywhere. Paul, as he's writing to these Jewish Christians, he's saying, look, those who know what is right, that doesn't make them any better than those who don't. Those who know the will of God doesn't make them any more prone to receive anything good or bad from God. Now we're all judged equally whether we know it or not. We're all judged by the secrets. God, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. See, I think there's a hard reality Paul's beginning to drive home. That it's easy to look on what's on the outside and what we see. It's easy to see the person who's treating you poorly and go, that person's a horrible person and they really suck. And it's a lot harder to see what happens underneath their behavior. The emotions they're feeling, the hurt they're walking through, the struggles leading up to it, it's a lot harder to see their strong desire to do what is right when they keep falling into what is wrong. We're all really prone to judge what we see, but God judges the secret. And the secret heart of man, every one of us, is broken. Whether we know what's right or wrong, we do what is wrong. Even if we're really good at hiding it. In fact, I grew up with four sisters. I was the only boy. I was the middle child. So obviously, as the only boy and the middle child, I was often overlooked. But also, it was never my fault. I knew growing up how to do all the wrong things and make it look like my sisters did it. And they knew that I knew that. And as a child, I thought my parents didn't know. I'm sure now as an adult with kids of my own, my parents knew as well. But somehow I could get away with just about anything while my sisters could get away with just about nothing. And yet, the secret of my heart was often that because I knew I could get away with stuff, I looked for how much more could I get away with. The secret of my heart was how often can I do the wrong thing but give the appearance of doing the right thing so that people think highly of me without actually having to become the kind of person they think I am. But God, he judges the secret of the heart. He goes on here a few verses later in verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now again, this is an odd thing for him to describe in the context of doing what is right or wrong. And yet for the Jew who would be hearing this letter, this was quite controversial. You see, throughout the Old Testament, God gives several covenants. These are promises He makes on behalf of His people. And every time God makes a covenant, He promises, I will always do what I have said I will do. And throughout Scripture, there's five really significant covenants that God gives to His people. First, there's the story of Noah, and God in His judgment floods the whole world, and afterwards He speaks to Noah and He puts a sign in the sky, a rainbow. He says, this sign will be evidence of my covenant, my promise that I will never again destroy the whole world with a flood. A little bit later, He calls a man named Abraham, who He later changes his name to Abraham, and He gives Abraham a promise your descendants will be more numerous than the stars. I will make you a great nation, and through you all people in the world will be blessed. And yet at the time, Abraham didn't have any children, and he was quite old. 
And so God gives to Abraham a sign of this covenant. The way in which you will know the promise that I am making you a great people is every male among you shall be circumcised as an evident sign that I am your God. That's just a brief aside. I wonder what the conversation was like when Moses came down from the mountain, or when Abraham came down from the mountain of meeting with God, and he's like, hey, and he speaks to all of his servants and all of his family. He's like, hey, guys, good news. God's going to do something wonderful and bless us. But first, it's just going to cost a little bit from each of you guys. Do you mind? Like, I wonder how excited they were to hear that was the sign God gave. But this sign was really important. So much so that uh, quite a while later, when Moses comes along, Moses is given this promise by God that through Moses, the people will be rescued from slavery. And as Moses is going to rescue the people, God comes to him to kill him because he and his son are not yet circumcised. And quickly in becoming circumcised, God spares them. Circumcision for the Jewish individual in the Old Testament was a physical reminder of the promises of God. That every time you saw it or thought of it or knew of it, you knew that you were one who was included in the family of God. And so for those who were uncircumcised, it meant they were outside of God's promises. They were doomed to be abandoned by God eventually. There's a couple other covenants. One to Moses, the the law that's given and a promise. And the sign of that covenant is the law and the ark and all the things given there. Then there's a promise, a covenant made with David that one of his descendants will sit on the throne forever, but there's no sign given specifically to that. Elsewhere, we can say that the sign of that promise was a virgin shall conceive and give birth to a child. But then there's a fifth covenant that we'll talk about later that comes up in the New Testament. The sign of circumcision for the Jewish people was essential. Even when they were not following God. Even throughout the Old Testament when they were being disobedient and chasing after all kinds of idols and worshiping all kinds of false gods, even then they continued in this promise. If we remain circumcised, we are among the people of God. Paul, as he spells out that God does not judge with partiality, that God reveals the secrets of men through Jesus Christ, as he spells out this reality, he says, look, circumcision is nothing if you continue to persist in doing what is wrong. And for the Jewish individual and even the Greek Gentile individual, this would have been everything. See, imagine converting to Christianity to follow after Jesus as a grown man. If the culture says you must be circumcised, now your decision is not just, do I believe in this Jesus and want to follow him? Am I willing to undergo surgery to follow him? That could be a hindrance for some. I'm not sure. And these Jewish Christians in Rome were insisting that their Judaism made them something special, above and beyond the Greek Christians. Paul says, look, circumcision is of no value if you continue to do what is wrong. Now we're going to pause for a moment, flip back to Ezekiel chapter 36. In Ezekiel 36, there's another promise that's given to the people of Israel. This wasn't a covenant, just a promise. And this promise given 
uh, to the people is this. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Here in Ezekiel, the people of God have wandered away and though they are circumcised, continue to pursue all kinds of evil instead. And God through Ezekiel promises, look, in the day when I come to restore, I'm going to take this heart of stone and remove it and give you a new heart, one of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and you shall be cleansed and made altogether new to walk in my commandments and to keep my statutes, to follow after me and to live as my people. When Paul writes here that circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. He's calling the people to remember that these outward signs and outward acts and these things we do to be faithful to God don't really matter. Because you and I are not judged by how well we get it right or how much we keep the law. You and I are not judged by our ability to do good and not evil. No, we are judged by our heart. A heart that by its own is a heart of stone, but with the Spirit of God becomes one of flesh. One that is living and active, filled with all sorts of life. One that is new and continually being made new. We are in Him someone different. So then we continue in Romans chapter 3. He's still laying out this argument that our actions do not determine if we are right. And even more than our actions our origin and our family that we are tied to and the things we think will save us externally. None of this matters. In chapter 3, he continues then in verse 9, and he says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No. Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written. These next six verses, seven verses, he quotes a whole bunch of the Old Testament from Psalms to Proverbs to Isaiah to Genesis. He just mushes them all together into one long explanation of our sin. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul paints this pretty ugly picture of who every one of us, Jew or Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, every single one of us, who we are. We are not righteous and we do not understand and we do not seek God. 
He continues, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, for Paul, as he's writing, he's explaining this reality of what makes us right before God. He looks at the law of God, this thing central to the people of Israel, as a covenant, a sign of the covenant to Moses, this promise given to him. They look at this Old Testament law and say, if only we can keep this right, then all will be good. Paul, he sees this law functioning in three very significant ways. First and foremost, the law provides for us some curbs, some boundaries. Hey, stay within these boundaries and it will go well with you. Imagine the fourth commandment, honor your mother and father that it may go well with you in the land. When you do this, things happen to go well. But the second use of this law, the way in which he sees the law, is as a mirror. Anytime we look at that law of God, and we begin to see ourselves as righteous and holy and keeping it right, he warns us, this is not good and true. See, whenever we look into God's word and see his commands and the life that he has for you and me to live, if we're being honest, we will always see that we never measure up. We're never who we want to be fully. This could, especially at this time of the year, as people are setting off to become the best themselves they can be, be really, really discouraging. But this promise of God that Paul is leading towards is that it's not about you and me getting it right. When we look in the mirror and we see our sinfulness, when we look at God's commands and we don't measure up, he's inviting us to recognize that we are no longer judged according to the law, but altogether differently. You and I are not judged by how right we get it or how wrong we get it. We're judged by the one who reveals the secrets of men who knows what's going on deep within. Now next week, as we get into the rest of chapter 3 and we move forward, it gets really encouraging and exciting. But it's tempting right here to go, well, that's pretty hard to see. Especially when none of us, to my knowledge, are Jewish. So we all fall in the Greek category. And because none of us are Jewish, none of us have been holding on to the, the faith of our families for generations and thousands of years to say, because of that, therefore I'm saved. And yet, if you grew up here in the South, or like myself, not in the South, but in the church, perhaps your faith is built upon the faith you've been told your whole life. I go to church on Sundays, sometimes on Christmas and Easter. I give occasionally. Like I know what is good and what is right. It'll be okay. I think in many ways, like the Jewish people he writes to, when we look at our Christian culture or our Christian upbringing or even our Christian tradition and we say, in these things, I'm okay. It's really, really easy to then begin to look at everybody else who does not fit within the same box that we do. At everybody else who lives differently, who thinks differently, who acts differently, and to begin to say, well, I'm okay, but they, they may not be. 
And it's really tempting here in the Bible Belt culture to believe that we are right and everyone else is wrong. And this is why I wanted to begin with Romans at the start of the year. Because what Paul lays out for the Jewish Christians, I think, is just as important for you and me. We are not saved because we come from a good church or a great family. We're not saved because we know what Scripture says or because we're a relatively good person compared to all those other people. We don't have salvation and life because, well, this is just the way it is for people in the South. No, we have all of this because of Jesus. In fact, the fifth covenant in Scripture where God gives a sign is one that here in a moment we're going to participate in. When the night before Jesus was killed, He says, this is a new covenant given for you. And He gives us His very body and blood. That every time we look in that mirror of God's commands and we see that we don't measure up, every time we go over the curb and we're experiencing the pain of being outside of the boundaries of what is good and right, every time we are broken, we have a sure and concrete place to look. In Christ's death, in His life that was given, in His very body and His blood, you and I hold on to a hope that is far greater than any circumcision. That's far greater than any rainbow, far greater than any law. We hold on to a hope that it's not about us. It's not about me, and it's not about you. It's all about a God who loves you and me so much that He would give everything for us to be made right with Him again. And so this new year as we begin... The reason I want us to start here is whatever this year may hold, good, bad, and ugly, wherever you may go from this place, either today or future weeks, wherever the Lord leads you, it is my hope and my prayer that we can be a people who take this really, really seriously in 2024. And we look not to divide based on external things, not to create groups that celebrate me and us and how great we are, but instead seek those who are otherwise disconnected. The Greek, the Gentile, the ones removed from these promises. It is my hope and my prayer that in all that we do, we seek those who are hurting and lost. And we get to be hope and life and peace, and love. And like Paul, we get to not be ashamed of this gospel, which is the power of salvation for all people. And it's my prayer that in 2024, we can live as those where it really is not about us, but about people who God loves, who need to know His love for them. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you show no partiality. God, that Jew and Greek alike shall be saved. That those who grew up in the church and those who did not, and those who have lots of knowledge of faith and those who are brand new, for those who have no doubt and those who are questioning everything, for those whose lives seem put together and for those who seem far from you. 
God, I thank you that we get to be a people who hold on to hope that in all things it's not about us. In all things it's not about our efforts and our striving and looking better than the people around us. Lord, in all things it's simply about you. About your love and your grace and your unending forgiveness. Lord, this year may we be a people who seek unity, who bring peace, who seek out those who are far from you and give everything to show them love and grace and kindness and mercy. Lord, we pray today for those who are sick. For Sue, as she is healing from her knee surgery, may this new knee give her strength and energy for all that you have in store. For Dan and Sue, as they care for her mom, as they look for a job, Lord, we ask you would provide for their every need. For Lexi, for Sam, for all others who are pregnant and those who are longing to be. Would you guard them and keep them, bless them, and the child growing in the room. God, we pray for Kylie and for Kelly, for Kira and for Kathy. We ask for healing for each one of them. We pray for teachers who are returning to school and students who are filled with the energy of Christmas break. God, help these teachers shepherd and guide these students to walk with you, to grow in knowledge and wisdom and understanding. Guard and keep these teachers and these students safe this year from all evil and all harm. Lord, we pray for those who grieve, like Charles and Amber. Comfort them as they grieve. May they find their strength and their hope in you. Lord, in all things, whatever our prayer, may we know that it's not about us and all about you. And now, Lord, together with one voice, we pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now every week at about this time, we take a moment to collect an offering. And the last several weeks, we have talked about something very specific. As we ended 2023, we looked at a sudden increase in rent and what we think the future holds. And we asked you guys to join us in raising $50,000 above and beyond our normal offering for two purposes. One, to help offset an unexpected increase in our rent. And two, to start the process of looking for a long-term home, a place that we can call our home for good, hopefully without unexpected increases in rent. And so last week I shared kind of where we were at, that we weren't quite there, and I, I just wanted to share with you today where we are. One of our goals was that every person who would call this place home would participate giving something to do something towards our ultimate goal. And I'm really excited to tell you that 49 different households participated in doing something. And I say household because in some of those houses, husbands and wives gave separately and children also gave. We had children who participated. I want to do my part to do something. And so the number of people represented in 49 households is significantly higher. And that is a huge thing worth celebrating. 
every one of us said, I will do my part to contribute to where this church is headed and what the future holds. I'm unfortunate, sorry to say, we did not meet our goal of $50,000. We actually exceeded it. $52,547. For every one of you who participated and helped us reach that goal, thank you for your generosity. Thank you for being a part of this church community and believing in where God's leading us. As you give an offering today, if you came prepared to give an offering and this place is your church home and church family, you can place your offering with cash or check in the black boxes as you exit before you go, or you can give online at thepointknox.com. However you give and whatever you give, know this. We don't give to get God's love, but because we already have it. Thank you. That last little thing mentioned there at the very end, the Tuesday night prayer and praise, if you remember part of our year-end giving, we said this upcoming year we want to commit one night a year where we gather together to pray and to seek the Lord specifically about where He's leading us. So that will be this upcoming Tuesday night from 6.30 to 7.30. We're going to plan to be in the tap room, but if there's too many of us, we'll move down here and be in this space. So uh, please join me Tuesday. I'm really looking forward to it and it should be good. Also, after church today, if you notice, there's still Christmas stuff. For those of you who are really paying attention, Christmas ended yesterday, so we're going to take it all down. I'm sorry. We'll be Grinches for the next 11 months and then go right back to all the festivity, okay? If you can stick around after church today and help us put all of this Christmas decor away, that'd be super helpful. Now, every week I do my best to respond to questions that came in. So, Jay, what kind of questions did we receive today? Um, so we'll actually start with one that was left over from last week. That is, if the Holy Spirit were to manifest in front of us today, what might that look like? A lot of things. Um, on the one hand, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if you exhibit any of those things, that would be the Spirit at work in you. Uh, also, it's through the Spirit we can even praise God. So being able to have faith and believing in God is an act of the Spirit for us. But I think what was probably being asked was more the charismatic nature of the Spirit, the exciting uh, experience that some churches have regularly and some set as a standard of expectation. We believe that God does still move in miracles and He does still give prophecy in tongues, though we think that there's usually uh, order in all things. And so it's possible he can do miracles. You should certainly pray for them and ask. But our faith is not grounded in the need for those things. Those are more secondary. Sometimes they happen for the sake of sharing the gospel with others. So if you are in need of a miracle or something you want God to do, let's pray together and see what he does. And if he doesn't, we'll keep praising God by the power of spirit and moving forward. So. All right. Um, first question from this morning. There are approximately 425 verses with the number seven. Why is that number so prominent? Seven in Jewish tradition is the number of perfection. And so you see it all throughout the Bible, especially describing that which is perfect. Um, which is why six or 666 is uh, the opposite of that, because six is just shy of perfection. And anything repeated three times in Jewish culture was like... Uh, the most something could be. So 777 or 666 would be the most perfect or the most most shy of perfection. 
That's why 666 is for the devil. Next question. Uh, while God's covenant to Noah not to flood the world again, does, Jesus, or does God promise to strike the world again, or by Jesus' sacrifice, does that cover and God won't destroy the world again? When Jesus gave that meal of, of what we call communion or the Lord's Supper, it was actually during the Passover celebration, a celebration that was reminding them of God sparing the people from Egypt and bringing them out of uh, slavery. And in that meal, Jesus promises to take the cup of God's wrath upon himself. And so we believe all of God's judgment is poured out upon Jesus. And so you and I need not fear judgment. Now, the caveat and maybe paradox to that is you and I are more than capable of saying, I don't really want Jesus, I want myself. And in that case, that's going to be problematic. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think God's coming to judge the world in a destructive way, but to judge it and restore all things. And that which refuses to submit willingly to his restoration will be cast aside. Next question, what is the difference between a promise and a covenant? A covenant was permanently binding. A promise could be like an oath that it's not good to break an oath, but yeah, we all do that regularly. For a covenant in the Old Testament, they would actually, when, when made between two people, they would kill an animal and they would split the animal and they would walk through the blood and cover themselves in the blood as a sign, if either one of us breaks this covenant, let it so be done unto us for our unfaithfulness. And yet we see in the covenants that God gives, it's always him who bears the consequence if it's not fulfilled. Um, so that's our hope. God's covenants, unlike a promise, which are sometimes broken, a covenant is eternal. Now we also know that God's promises are always faithful, but ours are not. And God bears the consequence when, I, when his covenants are broken by us. Still got lots of questions. Whew. Lots of great ones this morning. Um, so the next question, are Jews today going to heaven since they do not believe in Jesus? That's debated by a lot of different scholars and Christians across denominations, and how you answer that depends on how you answer a lot of things. I would say that Jews who find Jesus as the fulfillment of their promises and seek him, even if they continue to practice their Judaism and their customs, Yes, they are saved, but Jews who continue to seek the coming Messiah and a new Savior and one who is, is still promised and not here, um, Jesus describes as being blind and having missed what was right in front of them. And so I think our hope and our prayer, just as it is for all people to come to know Jesus, would also be that Jewish individuals uh, who continue to believe there's a Messiah yet to come would see Jesus as the fulfillment of that. Right. Next question. If Adam and Eve were the first humans on earth, does that mean that we are all related to each other? <laughs> yes. And if you want to go too far down that rabbit trail, it gets confusing, but I'll just trust that God is capable to handle everything that happens as a result. <laughs> all right. As an aside, never mind. <laughs> I'll restrain myself. It's a new year. I'll save that for next week. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so next is, it's just a comment, uh, FYI did not receive the link for live stream this morning, so we can look into that and follow up to see what If you didn't receive it. it by this point, you're still not getting it because it's not working. But if you did get it, I don't know what happened, sorry about that. You can always find it at thepointknox.com or livestream.com, 
and usually Facebook, but sometimes that doesn't work. So. Right, and let me make <laughs> sure. Uh, one last clarifier. Uh, it is one night per month, not one night per year on the prayer. Yeah, that's a good clarifier. <laughs> the second Tuesday of every month all year long. So that would be this upcoming Tuesday and then a month from then and so forth and so forth. All right. And I believe that is everything. Just refreshed. So Awesome. Well, those weren't too difficult this week, but you're always welcome to, to ask really hard questions. And if I miss them on Sunday, I will do my best to respond midweek online or next Sunday instead. As you go today, receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen. Have a good week. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting The Point Ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.